Tired of feeling like a pawn in a world run by the devil? Overwhelmed by the constant barrage of negative influences from this world? We invite you to join us at the 2023 Men's Gathering, where we are excited to welcome the mad Christian himself, Reverend Jonathan Fisk. Close to 150 men will descend upon Lakeview Villages in Seymour, Indiana, the weekend after Easter, April 13th to the 16th. We hope you can join us for a relaxing weekend where our brotherhood is strengthened and new friends are made every year. Visit our website at mensgathering.us for more information and to register. Find us on Facebook for additional info leading up to the event. We are expecting a full crowd this year, so make sure to register early to reserve your spot. We hope you'll join us as we learn how to stop the white noise at the 2023 Men's Gathering, a proud supporter of A Brief History of Power. Oh, man, Dr. Coons, I, I when I think about San Francisco and the summer of love and the hippie phenomenon, the, <laughs> aside from like bad... Uh, you know, '90s miniseries about how the '60s mean everything to us. What, what yeah. really comes to mind to me more than anything is Gallagher, and this probably doesn't even work, but but it does. Like that guy, kind of, it, <laughs> he captured so much of what America thought of itself because of what the '60s are. There's like a freewheelingness. There's a um, there there's still enough civilization left. There's some wit to the thing. It's not completely noise and, and lack of talent. Uh, there, there's evidently a mind there, but at the end of it, you got watermelon on your face and it is slapstick and it, <laughs> and it, it is really just a comedy of errors, uh, compiling, uh, you got a bald guy with long hair smashing watermelons on stage. It's, it's, it's the summer of love. I don't know. Does that even connect? Why is it that that's what I think of? He just, he, he embodies that to me, but I didn't grow up through any of it. All of it just mediated through the television and right. for some reason he sits there as this like yeah that's what it was like the 60s was like gallagher that's what it was like <laughs> you know i i i I, w- I wish i could agree with you i i think it was a lot darker than that okay and and the branding is so important because you know gallagher gallagher was a buffoon which was fine there have always been buffoons there have always been clowns i, I don't have a problem with clowns i have a problem with clown world and mm. I think that clown world is sort of like, you know, my father hates clowns. There's, there's some kind of, you know, I think they're pretty medi- weird, man. I yeah. There's, there's some kind of medical weird. term for yeah. hatred of clowns. Yeah, it's not coming to my mind right now, but there is, it's like a really long one too. Yeah. Right. But I, I think that, 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 that clownishness has a dark side and it's not even clownish. So it's not entertaining. The summer of love, which is which is generally thought of as the summer of 1968, is called such for a variety of reasons. But but one of them is a, a an influx of of hippies to the Haight Ashbury neighborhood of San Francisco, and there is a concentration there of both change in pop culture that we'll talk about. But also an openness to drug use that is now standard and and commercialized, I think, in both the states where we live, as well as many others. And that those changes, though, have their own prehistory, some of which we traced last time. We didn't talk last time about broader Bay Area realities that are then concentrated or headquartered in San Francisco, such as the nexus of both certainly after the Second World War, defense research with particularly psychological research and pharmaceutical research about the effect of LSD and and other drugs on human beings. We could perhaps do a whole show about Ken Kesey's bus and the people that are in that bus and out of that bus also about the kinds of people attracted as early as the 1950s that are not you know homosexual necessarily but find in San Francisco a place where you can be increasingly what's called bohemian so you can sort of drop out of the ordinary pursuit of a certain kind of a life especially a life i mean you don't have to be homosexual a, a life that involves becoming an adult your life limited by having a family, by having to provide for a family that you can opt out of those things. And so I I see the summer of love as 
having to be branded that way because you're already by 1968 using love in a way that is not recognizable in a Christian and therefore a traditionally Western way. If I say the summer of love, I'm not saying that I'm going to go to hate Ashbury. I'm going to listen to a you know a certain number of Grateful Dead jam sessions. I'm going to do a certain number of drugs. I'm going to produce a certain number of you know, beat imitation poems 10 years later. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying I'm going to go there and live in a way that is pleasing to me for as long as I possibly can. That's the idea. And so I don't think absolutely everything that happened in the 1960s or something was evil. There are certain elements of what changes in the 60s that have politically all and and philosophically and religiously all kinds of directions so there are things about the back about the back to the land movement also pursued by hippies also sometimes in northern california tennessee other places that are in their own way extremely traditional i mean more traditional than the suburban lifestyle pursued by most americans at the time what's different about going to a city to pursue all the things that are pleasing to me for as long as I possibly can is that it has no particular time horizon and revolves entirely around me. And that is the way in which I think you begin to become, whether you are actively homosexual or not, homosexual in your spirit. Because now you are pursuing a life that does not involve the limitation that family and the provision for family brings. That's why the branding is so important because if you don't brand it as the summer of love, then you would have to give people a visceral sense of what, for instance, a San Francisco cop (laughs) has to spend his time handling, dealing with, cleaning up after in 1968. And that is a story that, you know, nobody knows for a reason because what, what, gets remembered culturally by our cultural mediators, our media producers, is that people were, for no no particular reason, just, just because normal life is so stifling and horrible, pursuing completely alternative ways of life from what they had been raised to pursue and what their parents were still in, in 1968 as the silent majority pursuing. So I think that... <laughs> I think that you've made the case that my Gallagher connection is is not one you disagree with. It's that he is the brand. So because I mean, when was Gallagher? He was for me. He wasn't in the '60s. He was in. Let's see. I'd put it like 1986. Uh, you know. Evening cable TV in my bedroom, you know, I could be watching Nick at night. Uh, I could, you know, afternoon cartoons are over. Um, and, you know, Nintendo has been played out for the day. And here's this guy. And I'm still stuck in the 60s. He sings and he smashes the watermelon, blah, blah, blah. But like the whole thing is the 60s was good, man. The 60s was the summer of love, man. So what it is is the branding. Right. And and what you're suggesting, and I don't think you're the only person ever to do this, you know, to revise American TV history. Um, but you're suggesting that the 60s was a time of of dark seated change that was under the underneath the surface of many of the things that we remember from Forrest Gump that may or may not have been good. <laughs> right. Uh, in, in the moment that they were in. But they they were uh, eye candy to. What ultimately, I mean, not ultimately, what on one far edge of the spectrum is the U.S. government doing research into uh, supernatural warfare, psyop, crazy yeah. stuff, right? On the one end, yeah. they're doing that. On the other hand, you have uh, sexual perversion becoming normalized in small people groups that recognize that they can be more gay and carefree. If they just, you know, live the way that they want, they disembody their spirit from any duty, any nature that would keep them connected to a neighbor or a neighborhood. And and you have in this then, again, the, the seeds of exactly where we are now. Um, the, the only thing that, uh, you know, you use the phrase no time horizon. I think that's a really interesting thing to, you're right, because like electricity gives you this ability to live without 
the sun. So you can kind of do what you want when you want, even though you're still going to limit yourself by your clock. So most people still have a time horizon there. But I thought that was, I don't really have something to add there. That was just a fascinating little bit of the, the carefreeness includes up to, it doesn't even matter what day or time it is because I now have become so disembodied that I can do things at all times. And the, the, the pursuit of godhood there, right? I mean, it's just really yeah, something. Yeah. I, the reason the reason I used it is because you you get you get in any city and certainly after electrification, just a different time horizon than you have in a place or a time or both where natural time keeping, which has to do with heavenly bodies, impinges upon you. And and in cities you can't really see those things anyway, generally. So that's that's one thing, right? And that's that's a much larger discussion about cities themselves and widespread use of electricity itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. What we're dealing with that changes when you you move from a city that is recognizable and it's it's still sufficiently conservative that San Francisco still has a, a fairly conservative Republican mayor into the early 1960s. And in the 1970s is going to elect a man that we'll talk about later on today named Dan White who thinks of himself you know sort of like a sort of like a conservative legislator from you know central illinois today would think of himself in his state as representing the salt of the earth religious families of san francisco and he's on the city board of supervisors in the late 1970s because you you still have neighborhoods where people have fairly normal time horizons. You know, I I have this job, I'm a cop, you know, whatever. And I, you know, my kids go to this parish school and they live this kind of life and we think these kinds of things. And these people over in Haight-Ashbury are just weirdos and, you know, whatever, right? So those people continue existing. What becomes more and more prevalent first as a self-conscious group, like we talked about last week, but increasingly, as we'll talk about this week, in power are people who are not devoted to any such, you know, normal human activities throughout human history. And I, I maybe one way to think about this is that we we talked about this a little bit in the episode on the the early history of AIDS. I don't remember which number that was. That would have been fairly early because it was partly about Fauci. So we talked about Fauci a long time ago now. And it, it is significant to remember that when the homosexual community group is aware that they are dying in certain numbers, their reaction is really never at all to blame themselves. And the behaviors that may or may not have everything to do with the spread of whatever devastating disease was spreading among them they they want to keep you know bathhouses open absolutely around the clock similarly when you are addicted to drugs as almost all the people that the city of San Francisco is currently subsidizing to be quote homeless you also lose track of time because that's going to take up more and more and more and more of your time. So your sense of time being discrete or coherent, much less connected to any sort of natural cycle of darkness and light just disappears. It doesn't matter because your your life is now determined by the pleasures you're pursuing, not by any natural or sensible marker of time like the sun or the birth of a child yeah, and, but that's or just the, the approach of your of, death. That's the description of the modern life now. Yeah, exactly. It's completely right. That, I mean, that, that, right. And that's, I mean, that's why I find all of this to be paradigmatic. I feel like I'm describing life in 2023 long before 2023. It simply comes earlier in San Francisco because San Francisco is a place where a group of people coalesce, but also a group of factors that we're going to describe as a San Francisco nexus come together that don't come together throughout the United States, not even in other large cities or major cities, 
earlier. And so San Francisco pioneers this coming together of factors that will determine modern life politically, personally, habitually, that will then spread to the rest of the country. So like, I don't, I, this is probably not like etymologically how it happened, but the use of the word gay, which means not just happy, but it would be used together with gay and carefree. Right. Right. Yeah. The spirit right. of being gay and carefree is indeed what the American spirit is all about right now. And no matter how they got there, right, the, the point, the, your point that we're all gay after all here because we're all pursuing our pleasure <laughs> yeah, after right. all, right? I think that's right. really something to look at and that the isolation from family, uh, the isolation from natural realities that keep time like day and night cycle, uh, it, it, it really, that's powerful, man, uh, that we're the spirit of the age is encapsulated in not the gay man's sexual perversion, but in the way that he is able to live a life of total hedonism that now we're all kind of on that train, or at least right. we're supposed to be. That's right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And that, that train consists, I'm, I'm just going to name the factors and then this will set us up for the rest of the hour. It are, I've identified four. I'm sure you can nuance them, break them down further, maybe combine some of them. It's up to you. This is not infallible. But it's for the purposes of clarity, I think that four different things come together in San Francisco in the 60s, but especially in the 70s. And thinking of the 60s and the 70s together is not natural because a lot of us periodize life in decades. But, you know, I mean, I've contended before, I don't think the 1950s end in the United States until people watch JFK get shot in the head. Right. And the, the 1960s is 1968 through 1972, 73. That's, that's when a lot of it's going on. Yeah. And there are dynamics that, as we'll talk about just shortly, only begin in the late 60s that mm -hmm. really reach their apex in the 70s. And then the reaction to them sets in in the late 70s. So yeah, right. So the ne the nexus has four elements to it. One is rapid pop culture change, and we'll explain all these more. Another is crime, particularly growth in crime, growth in open crime, growth in fear of crime. Something to remember is that after this period in the late seventies is when Dirty Harry is specifically set in San Francisco. All those mm -hmm. movies. Um, in addition to the other famous vigilante franchise, Death Wish, which was originally mm. set in New York. Another one is racial strife, not the existence of racial diversity in certain proportions, at least, which San Francisco has actually more of in the 1950s than, than most places in America, but racial strife, especially as an ongoing political issue. And then gay rights, which I, I see as the linchpin of all of those things because it contains culture. It contains activism to decriminalize the way that they live. And then it contains ongoing identity-based strife in the body politic. So that's why we have them listed the way they are. There are going to be elements of a little bit of narrative to each of those things in the rest of the hour, but that's the nexus. And if you can combine those things, have them ongoing such that culture is changing, crime is rising, we are afraid of each other, or we are enraged at each other, uh, depending on our group and whether it has a grievance or doesn't have a grievance, et cetera. And then gay rights, gay rights functions in the United States the same way that communist doctrine functioned in the Soviet Union. It doesn't mean that everyone has to know and understand, much less practice it. It means that it defines what cannot be criticized. Okay, so the the point of doctrine or propaganda, the point of flying the rainbow flag, which we said last time was invented in San Francisco in 1978, the point of those things, the point of Drag Queen Story Hour is not that you're all going to participate. Okay, the point is that you are not allowed to speak against these things. So it defines the outer limits of acceptable life. That's the purpose. And that's the purpose of its openness too, especially it's for us now, it's growing openness. It became very open in San Francisco in the 1970s and then produced, as we'll talk about, one martyr 
at least, and one monster. Before we do that, we'll talk about pop culture, crime, and, and racial strife. But do you want to talk more about the nexus before we go into pop culture? Um, well, I'm, I'm kind of writing it all down because I find it yeah. to be truly illuminating. Um, defining the outer limits of acceptable life, which, yeah, so pop culture then is the the place where people find normal, right? Or they're, right. they're sold normal. They Everyone wants to be an individual, so we'll all go to the same store and buy something different <laughs> at it made by the same company, right? Right. And to show right. how unique we are. Um, right. But we're also looking for, for permission to be, because we've been told we have to discover what we are. Uh, we, we're on a journey of, of, you know, becoming disembodied and better than I was made. And so I need to know, though, like, how far is too far? You know, what would be weird enough that's safe? And then I turn yeah. on MTV and there's super weird and that's too weird, but that's weird and safe. So I can do this, but not, you know, my parents won't be happy, but I feel okay about it. And that one thing, you know, I'll pass it on. But over Correct. time, then again, you're now going to be given, uh, extreme edges of behavior that gradually become less extreme by exposure to them. And, right. you know, so uh, the rock and roll is, is in so many ways an example of this. You know, now you go into the, the finest of hotels, expensive as the day is long, and you get in that elevator and you got like Aerosmith kind of, you know, volume turned up to two. You know, right. it's, it's just kind of in the background there, a little, a little sweet emotion and, or, or something, you know, Led Zeppelin, right? Like it's, it's background music. Now this stuff was, you know, going to burn the, the country down, they said. And right. well, well, then again, like, look at it. <laughs> and yeah, and you, you were definitely, you're definitely taught to think about those things, whether it's in Footloose or anything else, you're taught to think of those things as absurd, just mm completely absurd that anyone at the time objected. I, I think there's there's a couple things there. One is the idea that somehow music is an utterly neutral matter of sheer preference. Oh, yeah. And that generations, language. therefore, naturally have different preferences. Again, that's that's a function of media cycles. That's not a necessarily natural function. I don't, I mean, I, I mean, I actually literally listen to the music that my grandfather listened to. <laughs> yeah, you know, forget you, media cycles. But those things are represented to us as if you have any objection whatsoever, it's because of your fogeyism. So if you realize that, you know, Muzak was originally the stuff, the elevator stuff is originally based on classical music, and now it's playing what gets denominated as classic rock. Because when you go into a public space, what you're now listening to is something that is a lot more like rap than yeah. you ever would have heard 10 years yeah, ago. Yeah, truth. Okay. That, and that, that, that music has no effect on how you behave or who you are or what you think. And that is so obviously, when you say it explicitly that way, that's so obviously false. That the idea that you're laughing at people because they're like, they notice in San Francisco in 1968 that people who are doing drugs and living in certain promiscuous ways also listen to certain music and that there's no connection whatsoever is I, I it just it just seems extremely naive to me not to notice things that historically are always connected or that constant musical change induces constant cultural change in the American populace since yeah. the time when musical change can be produced industrially. Yeah, yeah. Well, so any argument I can make about a screen, I think you could probably end up making about music ultimately yeah. right. as a medium that isn't the word that has a way of moving you. Right. The point, the point of it, you're listening to it so that it moves you. Like maybe you're doing it on purpose. But to, to say that then... I know I this this is my favorite piece. It makes me feel so good. I think about it, and I you know I, I'm closer to God now. Um, but no, no, music is just personal taste. You know, whatever. Right. You know, people do what they want. <laughs> no, no, no. Like right. that was you're either you're either in a religion or you're not here. Right. This is like a cult like thing, or it's not, or at the very least, God, the word's so 
wonderfully deep, a medium, a medium, there are unseen factors going on uh, with mediums, whatever they are. And to, to just pretend they're not there is to be at the whim of those who right. know those things are there. Right. Yeah. And, and I chose music because the other forms of pop culture, or you could say mass culture, if you wanted to, that change in the 1960s or because of the 1960s are not nearly as accessible to your average person in the 60s or 70s and don't change as fast as music does. So yeah, TV changes. Yes, movies definitely change. They're just near, not nearly as ubiquitous as like AM radio is at the time. So we chose music because of that. We could talk about movies. We could at this point talk about TikTok, but it is rapid pop culture change that's going to induce changes in what is thinkable in life. Yeah. Well, that's where TikTok really is important. But I, yeah. I think um, that's interesting to think about how, you know, in any given year, there's going to be a couple of movies that a large number of people all see. And so the culture will like see those as yeah. events, right? They're, right. they're historical yeah. events almost, but not every movie. Uh, and, and, but there's a couple in each year. And yet in each year, how many songs are there going to be? How many times is the top, you know, top 10 going to move around a little bit? You're just going to have a whole lot more variety. You know, you got a season in the summer where the movies are going to try to have you watch three movies in three weeks or whatever, because they're all going to come mm -hmm. out. But music, that's just all the time. It's just, it's an endless game. It's like, it's like, you know, Twitter, uh, you know, there's never a bottom to when the new next song is going to be. And right. so that's the, to, to me that as a, as a potent tool, it, it, where I kind of want to hear you go, although I don't know that we necessarily want to go there in the time for this is how then devalued Christian traditional music has, has just been by us that, not that it's all perfect or all good or none of it could grow or you couldn't learn to jam a little better on the organ back there, Grandma. It'd be, it would help. But like we've we've undervalued the power of this tool um, in our in our congregations. And I, I don't right. know. Right. Yeah. Because well, and not really coincidentally, but this is this is a Southern California story, not a not a northern one, is that the growth of contemporary Christian music beginning in the early nineteen seventies is an acceptance that music has fundamentally changed for people, yeah. which really had not happened before. I mean, the variety in American church music prior to the 1970s is a result of differing historical traditions. So there's no shape note music in Lutheran churches and no one singing Salvation Unto Us has come in a Baptist church, but the basic parameters are much more limited musically, just purely musically, not to speak of lyrics, than they are after the 1970s. And so none of that changes if pop culture is not forced into a change by the promotion of rock and roll, by the promotion of a variety of musical forms, but, but especially by rock. So its prevalence or predominance and its concentration um, in Haight-Ashbury and at places like the Altamont Festival later on in the 70s. But there's so much that goes on with with yeah. rock and roll too, wherein like, so the music is the power that gets you to care, right? They get, you know, the riff of the guitar gets yeah. in your blood. Man, I love this band. Okay. Then there's, oh, wow, they look like that. That's some weird, this weird band, <laughs> weird guys, right? Look at, they don't look yeah. like guys. They look like yeah. girls. And, and, but you know what? I love their music. So, so what he cut part of his tongue off and he eats mice. So I love his music. Right. And just like that, through like a backdoor hatch into your brain, right. You've accepted something that if that guy walked up to you on the street, you'd be like, what's up with you, man? Right. Yeah. Go away. <laughs> Get out of my neighborhood. Yeah. And now you're going to let this guy tell you how to think. And there's, <laughs> there's always a time delay on these things. And it, it would yeah. be interesting to follow you know, let me get some high school yearbooks from some Catholic high school in San Francisco. And then let me get some public high school yearbooks from Des Moines, Iowa. And then let me get some yearbooks from, you know, some small town in Kentucky. 
you're going to see a time lag in hairstyles, personal appearance. I think for a lot of people, the 60s don't really occur for them until the 70s on a right, personal right, level. Right, right. But in the same way that if you know anything about the history of Hollywood, divorce is pretty common in Hollywood, in the movie, in the film industry in the 20s and the early 30s. That's not going to spread to the general population until the 60s or 70s as something that you would do with your life. But that time lag doesn't mean that nothing's going to happen. It just means that there's a lag. That's all. But yeah, yeah. Once the, signal... once the explosion happens in the mm-hmm. volcano, it's going to get to the bottom. You're not yeah, stopping the... it. You know. Yep. Yeah. The signal will get through. There's going to be some lag, but it will get through, and uh, it will have an impact. Well, so, so I think. Go yeah. Ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to move us on. Without the yeah, without those things, people's changes in their daily lives, which is really what I what I mean by everyone is shaped in the model of a gay man in a, in a transient city. Those changes in their daily life can't really occur unless you expand <laughs> or constrict or send down a dark place to a dark place, whatever, however you want to think about this. You have to change them on an internal level in order to change society as radically as, as it has been just in the way that the people dress and what they listen to and how they think and how they talk since the late 1960s. The spirit of change, um, trans, trans is a, a word that's been around, right? <laughs> yeah, Transient, right? Uh, in more than one way. So, uh, copycat. Um, last night I was on the way to jujitsu. I had to miss class on Tuesday for a funeral, and and I was going to drive by our local meat market. Uh, that we're on the west side of, of Rockford. We're outside Rockford, really. But, you know, the west side of Rockford is the rougher side of Rockford. Pennon's Meat's been there since 1952, something like that, neighborhood meat store. Anyway, I'm trying to get there and get there before class, and there's like 10-plus cop cars. Lights are all on. It's dark. And they're down the street. They got the road blocked off, and I'm like, wow, I, can, I, I can't go to Pennon's. I can't get through the street. So drive around, yeah. go to class, come back, check out the news at night, do a little look for it. And this, uh, again, a staple of, of a meat market, the whole neighborhood, whole whole area comes and uses this space. Um, a 63-year-old woman shot dead. Um, don't know why. Don't know if it was inside or outside. Um, but, but right there, uh, crime. And the kind of crime that in that neighborhood, which is, uh, although it's city, it's a neighborhood. It's, it's, you know, block after block of house, houses that are small. Um, dating probably to the fifties and sixties. Uh, and, um, uh, that neighborhood while not, not a safe neighborhood, it's not where the violence happens in Rockford all the time. So, you know, here, here we are. Why am I telling the story? Because it, it got real. The things that were once upon a time far away, they're, they're more and more. It seems um, the Idaho murders. I haven't mm-hmm. watched the news for a little bit, but you know the, that sounds familiar. Um, but you go back to the 1960s, and you you got you got this stuff happening, and it's it's kind of unique, right? At least in the storyline, it's not all over the country. Uh, and you got listed here: zebra murders, Zodiac killer, and, and all this. So you know, I don't know. I know that's connected, and and I know that. For the crime to be what it is everywhere now, we had to go somewhere from where we were then. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Because, and, and, and it's connected to the notion of racial strife. So in, in the sense that I think of pop culture change as the engine that drives rapid, even constant social change where we're always all becoming in some way San Franciscan and San Francisco is becoming a more horrible version of itself all the time. Crime, especially the fear of crime, the constant fear of crime, and racial strife. So you had this within the past couple of years in San Francisco over whether we we were going to eliminate admissions tests to magnet prestigious high schools in San Francisco because it had a disparate impact on non-Asian, non-white students. This is obviously also connected to the discussion of crime is what those two factors do. So the assumption that you are at odds with everyone all of the time who is not like you in some way politically identifiable 
but also that you are at odds with everyone all the time, even people that look like you because <laughs> they could be trying to rob you or kill you. Yeah. Those things are tremendously powerful agents of change. People do not change randomly and you can't get people to change constantly and randomly in ways that are non-intuitive like, oh, I should, you know, whatever, pay reparations even though uh, my family didn't get here until 1922. Whatever, you, you can't really do that unless you can create a constant sense of both novelty and danger. The combination of novelty and danger will push human beings to do all kinds of things they never imagined. Certainly, they were obviously unimaginable to their parents. So let me handle racial strife because it's just a smaller story, but it will it will connect to crime. Is that San Francisco didn't then in the seventies and doesn't today have a substantial black population like I don't know Detroit or Chicago or something? The point is not really the size of a group; it is what the group does or what is done with the group. And one thing that is done with the group, really notably particularly by what will come to be remembered as Jonestown, but what is in its origin in San Francisco just called the People's Temple, led by Reverend Jim Jones, who is originally from Indiana and moves to San Francisco for reasons that I think <laughs> have a lot more to do with the stuff we talked about last week than people also tend to remember. Great book on his connection to all of these changes in San Francisco history is called Cult City. It came out pretty recently by Daniel Flynn. Good place to go after these episodes. What is going to drive Blacks in San Francisco, but also some others, there are Chicano nationalist movements for, for Mexican Americans and so on, is a sense that the United States is fundamentally a place of evil and therefore, if you are not part of the majority population, or in the case of test scores in modern San Francisco, the non-white and non-Asian population, then your life is going to be centered around your grievances. Okay. Remember, that was not a tactic used by the Irish in Chicago, even though I suppose they could have had them. But it is definitive, certainly, of modern America, particularly in the ways that races are taught to think about themselves. They're either oppressors or oppressed uniformly and uniquely only. That's that's all that's ever happened is that black people have been oppressed only ever or that whites are always oppressors or whatever. And that those ways of conceiving of racial groups or to some degree ethnic differences, but it, it's generally racial, that exists particularly in relationship to the San Francisco Police Department in San Francisco as early as the mid 60s it's going to become enormous in the 70s so it it's not the size of the black population that matters it's the way that they conceive of their relationship to the city and then of their demands that are already happening in the 60s and then get put into practice in the 70s that you must have hiring quotas for black officers which are going to go along with something else that San Francisco will pioneer which is women operating as a gender-based political block. So you're also going to have hiring quotas for female officers on the San Francisco Police Department. What's going to make this easy, and this will shift us a little bit into crime, is increasing media coverage. There's the media again, saying that the San Francisco Police Department is just incorrigibly corrupt. Now, whenever you see a, a corruption investigation in the government, I don't think you have to be entirely suspicious that it's real. The question to ask yourself is, why are they telling me this now? Hmm. <laughs> because if you go back in the history of almost any group in any kind of authority, you will find corruption of various kinds. So why, why does this become a focus? Not in the of wells, dude. Not in the wells. Right. Yeah, except for them. <laughs> if you look in, this becomes kind of a focus before the summer of love ramps up, then becomes the cause of citywide action and a, a policy of we got to clean up the police force by a mayor named George Moscone, who is Italian, is, is supposed to be Catholic, isn't functionally paging Nancy Pelosi 
This is already going on in the early 70s. What the media is able to do is it can drive the way that people are now thinking about things despite mm -hmm. their visceral reaction. So here's the irony, and it, it's an irony that we're going to see again, and obviously in the, the summer of George Floyd, is that simultaneously two things are happening. One is the police are beginning to be widely reviled, whereas they had been widely honored. Mm -hmm. That pendulum will, after the 70s, swing back in the direction of the police. But you can even see that attitude toward the police in the vigilante movies that I mentioned earlier, including mm -hmm. Dirty Harry, right? Is that the police are just ineffectual at best and, and corrupt at worst. They're evil. What happens alongside that attitude, that change in attitude, so we're not honoring authority figures anymore, they're evil, they're wicked, they're racist, they're homophobic, they're misogynist, whatever, is that crime is viscerally and experientially rising. So you wouldn't... <laughs> You wouldn't really know this unless you lived in in a major American city right now because you're not really told about it. You're told about climate change or severe winter storms or something. Crime you're is not told everywhere. Yeah. Right. You you're not you're not told about the rise in the murder rate in Portland. You I mean it's just not a focus of national media attention. So as crime rises, the police get for politically understandable reasons, warier and warier of enforcing the law, especially against select groups. So crime continues to rise because people can act with more impunity. The, the two examples here of crime that I picked out are just two because <laughs> California in the 60s and 70s seems to be uniquely productive of serial killers yeah yeah yeah. you could do we could do a whole series right yeah that'd be fun right there. <laughs> I mean, terrifying gross fun yeah fun maybe for halloween maybe around halloween we'll do yeah. that it and the the two sets one one continues to be unsolved i mean there are lots of theories about who it was the other is i think less well known i've certainly never seen a movie about it but was solved so on the one hand you have the one that was known and solved are what are called the zebra murders. And they're called zebra murders because they're they're all black on white killings. So a group of men who appear to be black nationalists in in their motivation decide just to kill white people randomly. Why have we never heard about this? This seems like a story that would make front page. What? Right. Well the, the... yeah, there's no this is not a this is not a grievance a grievance to nurse. It doesn't um, fit the narrative, Dr. Coons. I can't believe this, this is, actually happened. Yeah, this is not one that they want you remembering no. or even knowing about. So so those are the zebra murders. You can go look those up. The details, you know, I'm not I'm not a true crime podcaster yet or whatever. I don't know. Um, those are the, those are the zebra murders. You heard it here first, everyone. Right. I'm not, yeah. I'm not, uh, yet. Uh, the one that is much more well known, but, but at least officially unsolved is what's called the Zodiac killer. So yeah. you can find at least one, if not multiple films about that. Certainly there are multiple documentaries about that. And that involves puzzles sent into the San Francisco Chronicle. And when is this guy killing whom? It appears to be random. It appears to be terrifying. It could happen to anyone at any time. The, those those two things don't actually capture the rise in petty crime, the destruction mm -hmm. wrought by people who are who are trying to get money for drugs, all of the things that make San Francisco in the early 1970s an extremely chaotic place for many people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They're just yeah. kind of heightened instances of the chaos. Like, like the present, right? Right, exactly. And so in the present, you'll get lots of coverage of four college kids get killed in Idaho. You will not get coverage of where these things might be coming from. Like how does racial strife create crime? Right. How does impunity and defaming policemen further crime, you know? Those things, those things are not connected to each other. All of those dynamics, grievance, group identity, impunity, fighting to legalize things that have always been illegal, those come together in what is coming to be called by the 1970s, gay liberation. So what is now called a pride parade is originally called, and it's called for a long time, I think into the 80s or 90s in San Francisco, the Gay Freedom Parade. 
And it's called that because pride is not actually the, the definition originally. It is that we will be able to do what we want. Not that we were, this comes later, that, that we are downtrodden, but we're proud of ourselves nonetheless because people don't like us allegedly still in 2023 in the United States and like, I don't know, California. So we have to be proud. The original narrative, I think, is a little closer to life, which is we will do with impunity what you forbid us to do. And that is the spirit that I think becomes much more common than say, you know, obviously homosexual behavior is the idea that we will increasingly do whatever we want to do with impunity and we will do it in public. So already in the 50s and 60s, there were in San Francisco what are now remembered generally only locally. The only one that's remembered nationally is the Stonewall Inn riot in the late 60s. It's not remembered the age of some of the quote patrons, but you already have in the fifties and sixties in San Francisco, as well as in Los Angeles, various refusals to leave generally restaurants by groups who are like men holding hands, men dressed as women all together in a restaurant, whatever. And then the the San Francisco police come in and they're going to get them on whatever various charges illegal consumption of alcohol. Generally, homosexuality in some way is illegal, whatever, various things that they can get them on, open drug use. And so they're in fear of these raids. So in the 50s and 60s, every once in a while, somebody pushes back and says, no, we won't leave. We're not getting out. We're not going home. By the 70s, what's happening, and the reason that you're going to have things like parades, especially in increasingly gay neighborhoods, the reason you're going to have a flag is because you're you're going to go public with yourself and your group, therefore, will become an interest group among others. In San Francisco, for the reasons that we outlined last week, it's going to become particularly important. So by the 70s, you have elected officials running in San Francisco alongside, and this is where San Francisco as this microcosm in the 70s looks to me a lot like America in 2023. Simultaneously in Congress, you know, you have whatever, you know, lesbian lawmaker from New York or something. You also have some guy from Alabama that is like arch conservative. And, you know, his dad was a Baptist minister and he takes the oath of office for the very same Congress on his Baptist minister father's Bible. San Francisco has that in the 70s. So you've got Dan White, who by the end of the decade, under circumstances that are, I think are a little suspicious, is going to assassinate Harvey Milk, the most famous openly homosexual politician in San Francisco. And alongside Dan White, you've you've got Harvey Milk. And at at one point, you know, Dan White is pulling this sort of like circa 2012 Republican thing where he's like, Look, I, I don't have a problem if you do this in private, but I don't want this to be legalized. <laughs> Instead of saying what people would have said like 20 years earlier, even in San Francisco, which is, this is disgusting. Nobody should be allowed to do this. So what what is going on in the 70s is that this group is now self-conscious. They're politically active. People are being elected even to citywide positions as open homosexuals. And that that produces, and this is where we're going to have to wrap up and we'll continue on, uh, kind of connect this to our next city next week. But that produces in time one important martyr and, and one important monster. And the fact that the martyr is connected to San Francisco and all of this to what will come to be called gay liberation and the monster is not is pretty much all you need to know. So if you're going to forget all the rest of this, when the fire and the earthquake were, when the exhibition was, all of it, just remember these two guys. The martyr is Harvey Milk, who had moved to San Francisco in the early 70s from Brooklyn with his boyfriend, seemingly in order not just to be a homosexual man in San Francisco, but to be publicly and politically active as such. And he attains rather quick success. So he is going to be very important, perhaps statewide important, certainly for gay liberation, nationally important. 
at the time when during his you know time as a supervisor in San Francisco, Dan White shoots him in his office in 1978. Milk will then be remembered, and this is just on the verge. This is this is the very beginning of where we picked up with the early history of AIDS episode. This is the very beginning of especially homosexuals having a grievance saying, we are dying and you don't care. Now, the really important thing with any grievance-based group is they'll always tell you what's happening to them. They won't tell you why. So they're, this is not their fault. They're not doing anything to cause this. Harvey Milk is going to be their first martyr, even though he doesn't die of AIDS, he dies of a gunshot wound. He is representative, right? The other guy that he's actually working with politically in the book called City that I mentioned is, is important here, that he's working with politically that matters a lot. And that really will prove to be a kind of monster and sexually a very opportunistic, promiscuous, and and you know, not really worried about male or female kind of a monster is Reverend Jim Jones of the People's Temple. The fact that I bet plenty of people know about Jonestown. Even more people know the phrase, don't drink the Kool-Aid. They do not remember that it is really San Francisco that makes Jim Jones. And that throughout the 1970s, until they moved to Guyana, Jim Jones is more politically important in the city of San Francisco than almost anybody else. Very little can happen without his benediction. (laughs) I mean, he and Harvey Milk work together politically to accomplish certain things. And Jim Jones is on a citywide commission on housing for this appointed by George Moscone, the mayor of San Francisco. So these men are both produced by and help produce this environment, this nexus that I think you'll find lots of places in modern America. And the fact that not only that they knew each other, but that they work together, that they are part of the same place and life and time totally unknown. I mean, people are not connecting the phrase, don't drink the (laughs) Kool-Aid with gay liberation because love is love on the other hand. And on, on, you know, on the one hand and on the other hand, I, I would never drink the Kool-Aid. I'm an individual. You're not supposed to drink the Kool-Aid, but are you supposed to go into the guy who's making the Kool-Aid's office and shoot him in the face? What, what made white shoot milk? That's what I want to know. So this is, yeah. That's a that's a strange story. It comes to be known as the Twinkie defense. Oh, there you go. Because <laughs> when White gets put on trial, it's already taboo. Like White White cannot just go in and say, I thought he was evil, so I killed him. He also killed another man, and he apparently sought to kill two other people, although that's debatable because that gets remembered by a third party years later. Okay. So he he definitely killed two people. The Twinkie defense is he says he was extremely depressed at the time because he couldn't make money as a city supervisor. So this is also something to know about Harvey Milk is that he's wealthy enough and is sponsored enough that he can afford not really to make a salary. He and his boyfriend run a camera store in the Castro district. Dan White can't really make money, doesn't have a boyfriend. His wife is a stay-at-home mom, normal in the 1970s still. And so he's not making any money. So he resigns from being a supervisor. He then regrets it. People are like, see if the mayor will appoint you back to your old position, blah, 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 blah. These things don't happen. So now he's regretting pretty much every direction his life has taken. I mean, he's a desperate man. But what he claims is he he did these things and he was, it's sort of, it's almost like an insanity defense. Yeah. But he's like, I was so depressed. I was just eating Twinkies constantly. Dan White is... If you go and you look at his prehistory, he's he's sort of like a, I mean, he's like all American boy, right? Very healthy, very fit. I think he's like an Eagle Scout military hero. So Twinkie defense is, I was so depressed. All I, I was just sitting around eating Twinkies all the time. I'm depressed. I didn't know what I was doing. I shot these people. I'm sorry. So he gets a reduced sentence. This is an absolute outrage at the time to... The gay liberation movement. Right, right. Because it was a hate crime. Because their martyr was just slain. It was a hate crime. Clearly. And the term doesn't exist yet, but the sense that if you slay a member of a grievance group is, I mean, this is, you know, think of the equivalent in Soviet Russia. You have killed a, you know, a KGB agent. A member of the party, man. Golly. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Don't mess with the regime. 
So they're already in power. This is the regime. And the reason San Francisco is so important is because by 2023, we're all there. I mean, even if, even if we are in our personal lives, Dan White, what we consider all American, you know, religious people, we are at a distinct disadvantage when we have any kind of conflict with a member of a regime power group. But especially, I think, of the, you know, alphabet plus community, as it's now called, <laughs> because what we're dealing with there is challenging the dogma of what it means to be a good and a true human being, which is to discover yourself and pursue what you find good, independent of all other factors, visceral, natural, unnatural, whatever. So when you challenge them, you are you really are challenging everything. Well, I see a and, parallel between yeah. um, white and even his name's even white. Look at that. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, what, what you might call the based, perhaps Christian nationalist, but not necessarily Christian, maybe just nationalists, uh, January 6th attending kind of, uh, American who wants to, wants to stop his neighborhood from turning into a clown world. Right. And the there is a niche community a niche voice on alt right uh which says that harvey white is a harvey white no uh whoever white harvey was, milk no what's the first name of white white was um dan white dan white they would say that dan white's approach is is actually the approach that uh people should just get together and take and um sadly i think there's enough despair there's enough crazy that some out there are going to think that that is in fact the answer. And the lesson I would take from this is like, you, know, you can't fight city hall. Well, you don't fight city hall by murdering their guy in front of everyone in city hall. That, that, yeah. that doesn't forward your cause that forwards their cause, right? They want you to lose your mind as some white nationalist and go out there and do something that hurts a bunch of people that they can then, um, take away more of your rights, right? And, they do. Yeah. They they want the violence to be obviously categorizable as ideological and, and particularly ideological evil. They want you to appear within the villain role that was already prescribed. Right. So the, the final city that we're doing in this series is New York for reasons that should be obvious, but some of which will not be obvious that we will explain. And we'll have a larger time horizon with New York. But one of the places that we are ending with New York is about crime in New York. And so in order to transition there, I, I saved Dan White for the end in order to compare him to a man who also fires a gun, is not a city official of any kind, it doesn't kill city officials, in the 1980s in New York. And that is a man most listeners will not know, and that is Bernie Getz. That becomes a nationwide debate about concealed carry, about firearms, about a lot of things. Is that the same law that but was just struck down? Like this fall? Things passed in response to Bernie Getz in New York State were and and then and then built upon yeah. are what the Supreme Court overturned in ruling in favor of the NRA. Yeah. Against the state of New York. I started yes. to distract you, but yeah, okay, cool. I'll no, you're home. fine. Yeah, because because Bernie Getz is a reaction to New York in the 70s, the 80s, and even into the 90s that is not the path that was taken by San Francisco. So San Francisco, the way that I see this is if we continue this idea of streams rising to the surface, has continued as a single stream from the days of Harvey Milk to this day, and seemingly that water has spread to all of us. The alternative taken by most of the United States and that the reason that we're tracking many of these reactions in the history of New York was was to reject large parts of the 1970s. Not entirely. I mean, we, we still got to the point where San Francisco matters and pride flags are everywhere. But there are reactions to these things and there are paths that were taken that are not the ones that were followed by San Francisco. So that is why we are winding up on New York because it is not, in fact, I mean, I've contended before, 
I don't think most places in the United States cities are actually in some ideological sense liberal. They are places that are dealing with the same problems that San Francisco is and often take different solutions. New York is actually pursuing a different one on crime right now. But we want to end on crime and end on, let's say, vigilantes because I think this is another way in which San Francisco is not actually abnormal. It's just a heightened version of something that was always normal in American history, which is the idea that if the government will not actually fix things, who's going to? And the various answers to that question are what make both the history, but also potential futures, both, I think, scary and fascinating. When you said Alphabet Plus a few moments ago, you're just yeah. referring to the uh, the deep state, right? I, I would, I'm combining in the notion of Alphabet Plus community a combination of the deep state and, let's say, big gay Okay. So okay. So LGBTQIA plus plus community okay. combined with alphabet agency gets you alphabet plus community. Okay. Because they work in tandem with each other. Is is it irony at all that uh, the mother company? Yeah, yeah, it's going, a little bit of irony. I mean, you know, it's it's you know Scott Greer, you know. You get the term globalist American empire. Scott Greer just pronounces it as an acronym gay, which oh, is fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's sort of alphabet plus community is my version of well, saying G-A-E out loud. Yeah, okay. Um, I just find it interesting that the uh, stupid connections that my brain makes that uh, the parent company of Google is alphabet. You know? <laughs> And I didn't even think of that yeah, when I said well, it, but let's I've, add it I've in. I've had the thought before um, when I'm on my conspiracy, you know, good days. It's like, <laughs> oh, Alphabet, ha, huh, so all those agencies like pulled one on us. They started a company called Google. <laughs> right, uh, yeah, <laughs> but, but right. you know, the you know, San Francisco, Silicon Valley, uh, there is a push and pull between those power centers, uh, but Always. I don't know, to uh, to see that Alphabet Plus uh, maybe is is the whole beast there. In one word, that's kind of an interesting thing. <laughs> that's yeah. right. That's Maybe right. not the catchiest ending to the show. We'll pick you up with New York next time you found a brief history power. You know where to find us or you wouldn't be here. The Hebron Collegium is a gap year Bible school for men in Rockford, Illinois. Semi-monastic boot camp for Christian living. Cowards and slackers need not apply. HebronCollegium.com What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. At 7,123 feet... You can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you. Natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out, and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, our Savior Pagosa Springs has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at our Savior Lutheran Church and School a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, 
small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament, where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the beautiful inland Northwest.